0: Coming up this hour, we're going to cover some disturbing news from Chicago all the way to Beirut. We're also going to talk about an article that talks about why we hate each other so much. And then Jordan Abina, author of the new book, Thoughts of a Dying Worship Leader. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. A couple of particulars. First, you can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, we not only post articles there, you can also send us a message if you like. We're on Twitter and Instagram, at Common Good Talk, and wherever it is you get podcasts. If uh, you wouldn't mind subscribing, rating, and reviewing, all of that really does help us out a whole lot, and uh, I don't typically do this, Brian, but we're going to start on a bit of a heavy note. The whole show won't be quite this heavy, uh, but there were just a couple of things that were sort of consuming my news feed that I felt like we should at least touch on, and I imagine and many of you have probably heard of these stories already. But the first one is out of Beirut. Why don't you give us like a just a quick flyover of what's going on there?
1: Yeah, it's terrifying. There was a large blast in the Lebanese capital of Beirut that at this point is said to kill 27 people and injured more than 25 others, uh, 25,000, 2,500 others. But if you've seen the video, I would be shocked if there weren't scores more killed than 27 and they're not clear what has caused the explosion in the port region of of Beirut there, but the video is uh the video is just terrifying. I would encourage people, if you haven't seen it and you're interested in what we're talking about, it's on CNN, all these other places. But there's one explosion, a huge one, and then a second explosion that is like nothing I've ever seen. Man, I don't know if you it's like you described it as something out of a movie, but you can just yeah. see the shock wave going. It is terrifying. And so Uh, You know, there are people saying it was because it was a fireworks area all the way to like, this is the instigation of a war, (laughs) like it's anywhere in between. So we don't want to speculate, but the video footage is absolutely terrifying. And so, like they said, they've already confirmed 27 people dead, but I have to believe it's going to be a lot more than that. And so uh, severe damage a uh, lot of destruction in Beirut, really, really a heavy and just a shocking um, thing that happened there this morning.
0: Yeah. And it seems like the story is ongoing. It is still developing. So I would encourage you to go and, and read more. We're not going to dedicate a lot of time here, but we are, I mean, at the very least going to say, let's, let's be praying at the yes. very least. It is the kind mm-hmm. of thing. The first time I saw it, same thing. It was overwhelming. I mean, even just to watch cell phone footage or something like that. And a, a reminder again, that and there's just a lot of, there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of brokenness and grief in the world. And uh, we, we want to make sure that we're not just simply kind of focusing on ourselves, but also being mindful of what's happening around the world. I do want right. to kind of bring it local a little bit. I got a, a couple of different perspectives, some, some complicated and some heartbreaking things about uh, right now in Illinois. This first one here out of NBC, Chicago, Illinois coronavirus updates, Chicago travel orders, adds Puerto Rico Pritzker speaks in County at warning level. What, is going on here?
1: Yeah there's this feeling right now that Illinois that's been doing really well comparatively speaking with the coronavirus that we're starting to you know tick up a little bit and so today Chicago's top public health official delivered an update on the city's travel order like you said they added Puerto Rico but I mean Chicago is literally has a travel restriction against Wisconsin and some other neighboring states uh, and also that there's 11 counties in downstate particularly, Uh, where state officials say they are at warning level for the spread of COVID-19. And so the latest numbers as of Tuesday, more than 1,400 new cases and 19 deaths attributed to the virus. Uh, And so, you know, man, the numbers keep going up. The state seven-day positivity dropped slightly Tuesday to 3.9% after reaching 4% Monday. I believe the magic number in any one county is 8% before stuff starts changing again. Uh, And so you just are reminded that that this virus is still around. It's not going anywhere uh, and that hopefully we can get a handle on it. But Illinois, we need to keep uh, some of our neighboring states have not done nearly as well. We've got to remain vigilant or if you're not vigilant, start being vigilant. We don't want to kind of lose this and start heading in the wrong direction. Right.
0: Yeah. And this last story that I want to spend a little bit of time on, probably the rest of the segment, the headline out of the Tribune reads, nearly 40 people shot in Chicago over the weekend as July goes down as the most violent month in 28 years. In 28 years. That just is so rattling to me. It says nearly 40 people were shot in Chicago over the weekend. At least 107 were killed in July, more than double. The same month last year, according to data kept by the Tribune, that's the most homicides the city has seen in a single month since September of 1992, when 109 were recorded. Most of the people died from gunshot wounds, but at least six people died from stabbings, three from strangulation, two from child abuse, and two from assault, according to the Cook County Medical Examiner's Office. At least 570 people were shot during the month, about 250 more than July of last year, according to the Tribune's data. Okay, so I'm going to stop there. There's another article. It's up on our Facebook page. We might not have time to get into it, but uh, Janari Ricks was one of the boys, uh, a nine-year-old who was shot and killed. And there was someone on our staff actually who has uh, worked with Janari pretty closely. And she was sharing even just some of the heartbreak of knowing, not only knowing him and the family, but like just the, the life and vitality that he always showed in the classroom. And just, it was a very, very somber sort of staff gathering today. And and it was sort of one of those things that we know this is Chicago, but like Brian, you're out in Dunham's Grove. I'm out in Naperville. Right. It seems odd, but even having that kind of distance can some sometimes create a disconnect and spending some time today with a staff member that I don't even know all that well, to be honest, and hearing her personal account of like, no, this, this reaches all the way to where I'm at in my experience. And I spent time with him. Uh, I just wonder what, what are those numbers? do to you? Even just the, just the extraordinary spike from just last July. Like what, what are some things that come to mind for you?
1: Yeah. So what you said is absolutely true for me that we live, you know, at most 45 minutes from where this is going on. And it feels like another world when you read these types of stories. And, uh, and, and it's important for us to read these stories then, because we're reminded that this is right up the road. And two, uh, again, I feel like we've said this with COVID over and over. The numbers are overwhelming, but they they can also lose some of the um, the personal nature of it. And that's why when you read these stories of these kids or this seventeen year old activist they were talking about in here, uh, it's just heartbreaking. When you read their stories, you read their names, uh, you read their ages, and it's just unbelievably heartbreaking. And then the numbers make you go. What is it that made it be 250 more than July of last year, right? Is it the, the stress and the tension of the pandemic, uh, something about kind of the nature of protests, or is it just something uh, – is there something becoming – uh, more dangerous down in these areas of the city. I don't know the answer, but that's our. It's not like it was two more or three more. There's 250 more people shot than this month last year.
0: Yeah,
1: uh, that's a huge problem, and it uh, people a lot spar- smarter than me are trying to figure out the answers to that. Uh, but this should really cause us to lament and mourn for sure.
0: Yeah, there's a, an interview that I saw from Fourth of July weekend. So another girl was shot and killed, a seven year old, uh, Natalia oh. Wallace and her dad Nathan Wallace there's a couple of different videos floating around one one's from his car another's from uh, like an actual press conference and i actually thought about playing it in the segment now and i and i decided against it just cuz it's i would encourage you to go watch it like you need i think you need to see the expression on his face but there there was something to even just the rabbit trail of this last weekend i i did not I didn't know about the Wallace story, to be honest, up until no. earlier today when I was kind of doing research for this segment. So there's, yeah, there's not only like a disconnect at times, but also like an inundation. Like there's so much to yeah. keep up with all the time. That's even stuff that's happening in our own backyard, unfortunately, gets drowned out. And I don't think we can do that. I know that a lot of people listening, you're not here in Illinois or Chicago land, but for those, I mean, wherever you're at, I think it's worth being like informed and invested to pray and grieve and then. To put action to th- to the things in our in our own backyards, our own neighborhoods, our own communities that that are broken. And I don't know honestly what that action is right here. I think right. I have some ideas, um, and maybe there are people listening. You have ideas too. And we we would love to hear from you. But at the very least, I wanted to shed some light on some difficult, some frightening, uh, some tragic news, both from around the world, but also right here in our backyard. At the very least, to say as Christ followers, I think we need to continue to be a people of prayer, and then let that prayer lead us to action and uh, yes. coming up next i want to do an article that carrie newhoff wrote it's really good he says why do we hate each other so much five reasons anger is the new epidemic that's coming up next here on the common good on am 1160 hope for your life hey everyone welcome back to the common good my name is ian simpkins happy national chocolate chip cookie day brian okay i I'm, I'm a fan of that one you
1: are you are you aren't I am, although, have we talked about this? Maybe. Uh, I'm kind of on an island when it comes to chocolate chip cookies, and it started a little bit of an argument with my extended family the other day. Oh, boy. I was alone on this one because I prefer them not just crunchy but almost burnt. And uh, everybody else got really mad at me because they're like, no, they got to be gooey and soft. I'm like, nope, I want my chocolate chip cookie like like crispy, really crispy.
0: Yeah, you, How about you? You can go ahead and turn your computer off now, Brian. I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>
1: It was, I was on and I, there was, there was, there was five or six of us in that conversation and nobody came to my backup on that one.
0: And I am with all of them. I, I, I think it'd be treasonous to come to your defense in that regard. So
1: to the point that earlier in the pandemic, my wife made cookies And one of the batches, she was like, oh, no, I forgot them. And she was like, oh, they're burned. And it was my favorite batch of all of
0: them. Who hurt you, Brian? What happened (laughs) in your past that made you the way that you are? (laughs) Uh, I'm going to stick to it. Yes. I believe that you will. But I think that only never mind. Uh, (laughs) Let's let's I'm going to skip the particulars. You can find us online. That's enough. Um, So Carrie Newhoff we've mentioned Carrie before he's a nice guy yes. he's a pastor he's a podcaster he's a uh, author selling author yep yeah. yes he 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 puts up more blog content than almost anyone i know he must just That's have right. stuff backlogged for the next 10 years it's bonkers and it's a lot of it's really good so it's super frustrating <laughs> but he wrote a, a headline here's the article the headline simply reads why do we hate each other so much five reasons anger is the new epidemic you want to get us into this article
1: I do. This is good. He says, so much is changing so quickly in our culture. One of the things that's changing quickly is how deeply we seem to hate each other. Election years and global pandemics only seem to make that trend worse. I wish I could say Christians were exempt from this trend. We're not. In fact, there are a good number of Christians who are fueling it. A few years back, my social feeds felt a lot more fun than they are now. (laughs) Some days the feed is so bad, I just give up. It seems like an endless drone of suspicion. That fuels anger, that spawns outrage, that powers division. It's almost as though if you're not outraged, you can't have an opinion. I've stopped following people. Some people I used to follow. I stopped following some people I used to follow because, well, it's just wearying. Sometimes it feels like the outrage just waits to jump on whatever issue seems easiest to follow. It's a parasite looking for the next animal to suck dry. So what's going on? (laughs) How did we end up this way? And is there anything that you and I can do about it. We'll start here. Even though some days it might feel like everybody's angry, it's not everyone. Like many, uh, like other authors and thinkers, I'm trying to carve out space, he says, for the good people to hang out on the internet, a space where reasonable people can honestly share opinions and not jump all over each other. Well, that's what I'm committed to. It's not always that simple. So that's his introduction here. You and I have talked about this over and over again, about the societal outrage, the cultural outrage That seems so prevalent. And I think he's right. In some ways, one of the hardest parts for me about it is uh, it's not just that my Christian brothers and sisters, like say on social media, seem to be joining in. I think he's right that oftentimes... Uh, it's the Christ followers in my life who are fueling uh, a lot of this outrage.
0: And by, and by fueling, do you mean like antagonizing or yeah. pu- like poking or, the bear
1: unnecessarily? Like, yes. you know what you're, okay, absolutely, or lashing out in outrage yeah, yeah, as yeah. well. Right.
0: Yeah. Well, yep. and kind of what he said there, that last paragraph: we're trying to carve out space for the good people to hang out on the internet, space where reasonable people can honestly share opinions and not jump all over each other. That's kind of been a hope and a dream for you and I for the That's show right. from day one. So I, I really did appreciate that. He begins his list here. He says, the problem of course is more nuanced than simply blaming other people and walking away because I feel the spirit of the age inside me at, at times too. I'm an Enneagram eight, a challenger as they say, being an eight means that on my good days, I want to save the world on my bad days left to my worst instincts. There are bodies flying everywhere. I feel the spirit of anger right rising up in me too. And uh, so I appreciate him kind of owning up the eightness. Eights tend to be kind of the more aggressive, and he's saying like, hey, listen, I, I'm, I'm prone to this as well. But he gives them five reasons that he thinks uh, we hate each other so much. Five reasons that anger is the new epidemic. So why don't you walk us through number one?
1: Yep, number one, he says you're naturally more aggressive online than you are in person. That is true. People say and do things online they aren't comfortable doing in real life. Not only do you try to manicure your image so you look better than you do, but unless you work hard at it, you're more naturally aggressive, more div- more divisive, and more hostile than you are person to person. The question is why. Mm. The answer: because you're kind of anonymous. Even if you use a real profile pic and your username isn't something like Truth Troll Eight Two Three One Seven, <laughs> you still don't. How did he know my uh, my username? <laughs> yeah, right. You still don't, you still don't feel the closeness you do in real life. Distance between people desensitizes people and he goes on to explain that more again uh, on some level i feel like if we could ever bridge that gap between how people are online and how they are in person that would do such good to solve this problem because he's a hundred percent right people uh, are a lot more cruel and a lot more bold online than most most of the time than they are in person
0: for sure here's another one that i've seen a lot of hate generates more clicks than love Long before the endless fake news arguments of the day, TV news and newspaper editors figured out that bad news sells. We've mentioned this before on the show. My uh, community college education in this regard always said if it bleeds, it leads. So it's like hate or Mm -hmm. violence. Right. They learned how to play into our anxiety and fear to get ratings. The 24 hour news cycle and explosion of news media have accelerated those attention grabbing tendencies. Social media has put uh, those tendencies on steroids. Tristan Harris makes a compelling argument that algorithms Facebook, Google and other social media agencies uh, use intentionally prioritize outrage because, as Harris argues, the major social and tech companies have figured out that outrage spreads faster than something that's not outrage. It's one of the reasons we've committed to doing a segment on the show called Some Good News, because there's no shortage of bad news. He says, here's what's sadly true about human nature or at least human nature in the 21st century. Hate generates more clicks than love. He says, I've struggled with this. I know a lot of people have, but I've also realized that if I title things positively, nobody reads it. Have you found that to be true, Brian?
1: Absolutely. I think that's so true. And it's especially true online. Like, uh, yeah, it's like you said, I learned that too. Like, if you watch any morning show, Uh, they're going to start with uh, some bad news. They're going to start with a tragedy, and that's why. Uh, Number three, any attention can feel better than no attention. There's an inverse trend happening around this Thanks to technology, we've never been more connected than we are today, but we've never felt more alone. And for sake of time, what he's saying is we'd rather have negative attention than to be ignored and feel like nobody's out there, nobody's listening to us. And so, we're drawn to negative attention even above no attention, and therefore we're, we're uh, willing to be cruel and uh, cruel to other people.
0: Yeah, number four says, you know enough to make your world feel dark. Yeah. One of the challenges everyone is navigating is the flood of information that hits us every day. From your social media feeds to breaking news flashes to the minute-by-minute invasion of notifications, buzzes, rings, and haptics that disrupt our day, we're processing more information than any human who has ever lived. This is not good. If you flip back a few generations, you'll notice that your great-great-grandparents really only processed the information they needed to know and could act on. You only knew so many people, and when someone died, you knew them and could help by bringing the family food, attending the funeral, and being part of the community that could support them. Now, you get told several times a day about mass shootings, plane crashes, typhoons, and wars that kill thousands. I mean, that's even, for some of us, part of what we do at the show sometimes. But you don't know anyone involved that are mostly powerless to help except to give a few dollars to relief efforts or the latest GoFundMe campaign. Ditto with new emails, status updates. You are bombarded every day with information you can barely process, let alone do
1: anything about. That is for Mm. sure. And number five, anger can get you heard even when you have nothing to say. Uh Many people would say the opposite of love isn't hate, it's indifference. I think that's true. And when it feels like the world is indifferent to you and you're unloved, anger can be a way to get someone's attention. Uh, sadly, anger can get you heard even when you have nothing to say. This is good. That's a good list.
0: So he he gives four questions. I'll end with this. He says, uh, so what do you do? The future can be dark or it can be different. Personally, I'm putting my heart behind different. Here are four questions to ask next time you post, write, blog, podcast, or shoot that email. So I'm just going to end with these four questions because I think they're really helpful. Uh, first he says, what's my real motive? Am I trying to help hurt or just get noticed? Secondly, are people better off or worse off for having read what I just posted? Third, am I calling out the worst in people or attempting to bring out the best? And fourth, if the person I'm writing to was in the room looking me in the eyes, would I say the same thing in the same mm-hmm. way? Those so are great important. questions. I'd encourage you, go and write them down. Go back and read this article. It's posted on our Facebook page. We'd love to know, what would you add? What would you take away? What, would you, what, would, what was helpful, what was unhelpful? And uh, as a bit of a segue, this next article we're gonna tackle says this, 12 questions to ask yourself before posting something online. That's what's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Oh, hi again, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us all over the place. We also really appreciate any uh, feedback, any subscriptions or ratings or reviews on the podcast. All of that helps us out a whole lot. We got some discussion happening over on the Facebook page on the twitter page the twitter account and i've never said the twitter page before I'm yeah. probably accurate i'm not really sure it is also national night out day brian which is rough to say you got big plans on national night out day
1: i i have no plans but now that i know it's national night out day i mean i'm Certainly going to make huge plans tonight.
0: Obviously, like I'm <laughs> assuming you're going clubbing, socially distanced clubbing or something. No,
1: I'm going to go out on my deck. That's, that's about the extent that I'll probably make it mm, tonight, I'm sure. That
0: actually sounds much better. Um,
1: so we just did this
0: article by Karen Newhoff. Five reasons that we're uh, sort of at each other's throats all the time. And then Mark Dever, he's a senior pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. He wrote an article mm-hmm. over at NineMarks.org that says 12 questions to ask yourself before posting something online. And Brian and I say this a lot, like we don't agree uh, with every article we talk about. Sometimes, you know, we disagree with the entire article and we're just trying to have conversation. But I thought some of these suggestions were actually pretty helpful or interesting at the very least. So because yeah. there's 12 and we have limited time, why don't we just jump right in?
1: Yeah, and I do think one of the biggest things about this is to repeat, is to, if nothing else, to take away from the fact that before you post, think, right? <laughs> yeah. Ask yourself right. questions about why am I doing this? Right. So number one, he says, The first question to ask yourself before posting something online, he says, will it edify or significantly inform a useful conversation? Try to think of what will edify others. All we do is in obedience to the command to love God and love others. How will it increase their knowledge or faith or love? Are you accurately representing any positions you disagree with? How sure am I of my facts, uh, (laughs) trivialities? uh, hopefully fill up our lives less than they do so much on the internet. John Piper has said that one of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove on the last day that our prayerlessness was not from lack of time. <laughs> and he's right. So number one is, will it edify? That is such a John Piper quote, by the way.
0: Isn't he the one that posted <laughs> farewell, Rob Bell?
2: Wasn't
1: that? <laughs> it is.
0: He had time I, for that short I, one. Ironic. <laughs> I guess it was quick, so in, in, yep. in his defense. Uh, number two, will it be uh, easily misunderstood? Does the privacy of a personal conversation limits misunderstanding? In public posts, some things will sound one way to those who know us and another way to those who don't. Negative assessments are often best shared privately or not at all. How many of us have learned at our workplaces that email is a terrible way to share any kind of negative comments? And thinking of more public postings, ask yourself, are there reasons why I may not be a good person to speak on certain matters? That's like a jam-packed. I think it's true though, I've certainly had people, even if I was trying to like be clever. Someone yeah. will private message me like, are you saying this? I'm like, oh, no, 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 not, not at all. Oh my my goodness. At I can all. see how you <laughs> saw that, though. I've, I've certainly felt that myself.
1: Yeah. Number three, will it reach the right audience? If you're correcting someone, should the audience for that correction be wider or more narrow? Right. Is that audience correctable? When you use social media, consider who is listening to what you're saying. What if everyone in this room came over and eavesdropped on your conversations after the service today? Yet we do this all the time online. Will it reach the right audience? That's
0: good. Number four. There's no way we're getting through all 12 of these. Let's try anyway. We're getting getting it. Think positive thoughts, Ian. Come on. Number four. Will it help my evangelism? Is what you're about to communicate going to help or hinder those you're evangelizing? Is it likely to diminish the significance to them of your commitment to the gospel
1: or enhance it? That's a fair question. Yep, number five. Will it bring about unnecessary and unhelpful controversy? Think carefully about controversy. The line between vigorous exchange of ideas and a kind of social war is sometimes thinner than we may think. Hmm. What is this particular controversy that I would be contributing to good for? When is it helpful? Uh, When is it unhelpful? How much time will it take up? Is this an unavoidable primary issue? or a matter about which disagreement is fairly unimportant. Will this controversy play into any other division that threatens the unity of our local church? That's a good
0: one. Number six, will it embarrass or offend? Will anyone be embarrassed or offended by what you're saying? I understand that the mere fact that something is offensive doesn't mean that saying it is wrong, but simply we must be sure the offense is worth it. That's mm-hmm. actually kind of what I was going to say. I don't know that we can necessarily allow that to be the only metric, but I think you ordered yeah. that well, like... Yeah, sometimes maybe it's all right that someone be a bit offended if what they're saying or doing is horrific or toxic, but asking, is it worth it? I think is a good question.
1: That's right. Number seven, will it convey care? Will those mainly concerned appreciate your motives? Privacy and communication conveys care and honoring of the person receiving the information. You like the fact that your doctor's report is private, but you don't mind that the sale at the store is advertised. If someone would rather be addressed in person, why not do that? That's, that's mm-hmm. a good word right there.
0: I did just recently too. I, I had an email exchange that was starting to starting to pick. I could feel the heat increasing a little bit. And I was like, hey, uh-huh. can we just have a phone call? And it was so much better. Like it was, as I met, I was, you know, there's like a tenseness going into it. And then like 30 seconds into the call, you're like, oh yeah, this is someone like I really care about. Why were we getting uh-huh. at each other's throats? Uh, number eight, will it make people uh, better appreciate someone else? Point out God's grace in others' lives, ministries, arguments, etc., Highlighting something that will build others' esteem for someone else glorifies God and encourages others to see his work in them. That's a good one.
1: You and I are reading these like we're an man, because they're all questions. Like, number nine, <laughs> is it boasting? <laughs> I'm not burgundy? <laughs> Do what you communicate online. Uh, does what you communicate online draw attention to yourself more than your topic? How could that be spiritually harmful to you or others? Will it leave people with a more accurate understanding of you? Are you simply being tempted to draw attention to yourself or to what you know? Mm. When was the last time you encouraged others by sharing something embarrassing or even sinful of yourself? This question of boasting—that's a good one.
0: What do you what do you think about the uh, sharing something sinful about yourself online?
1: I uh, yeah, I keep away from that. At the same reason, I probably try to stay away from boasting. <laughs> like I probably why don't you share boasting, your but-
0: biggest sin in the last week right on the air right now, Brian? You want to?
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that'd be a bad
0: use. No, okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I pretend this one's difficult, especially online. Is the tone appropriate? Will people yeah. understand and be encouraged in the truth that you communicate? How important is the tone to your message being rightly received? Is it evidently kind, patient, and gentle? The literal tone of your voice and the look on your face fill out so much of what you mean. In a personal conversation, you can more quickly understand that something needs clarifying and clarify it. The internet doesn't sanctify anger or frustration. That's a really good point too, because there's certainly been, like like he's saying earlier, like if, you, if someone is assuming a narrative about you, you, yeah. you can throw something out there that's totally benign. But if someone wants to already kind of vilify you, they're going to read a whole other tone maybe that you didn't intend, which is hard to guard against for sure.
1: That's right. That's right. Number 11, is it wrong to say nothing? Huh. Do you have an opportunity or even a responsibility to communicate something? Some of you do this for your job. Have you established a relationship with readers, friends, and followers online that would expect you to comment on a particular issue or situation? Our freedom of speech is a wonderful stewardship. We want to use it well and responsibly. I guess there are even some jobs that aren't worth sacrifices they call for aren't there. So is it it wrong to say nothing? I think that's a great metric to look through.
0: See, and this is the one I was waiting for, number 12, which by the way... Pat ourselves on the back. We got through all 12. Uh, what we did. others advise, which also, by the way, since we're sort of reading these, go read the whole thing online because uh, there are passages ascribed to each one of these that I think is fascinating. He says When you're about to communicate something you know others will find provocative, do you have good sounding boards to try to help you estimate the response? Do you take time to consider before you publish? Speed of the response is both an ability of the internet. And a temptation to speak too quickly. Remember, you will give an account for every word you type. Does saying things at a quote safe distance from people tempt us to say things we wouldn't say to their face? I gotta give a shout out to my wife because she's an incredible sounding board wow. when something happens either in the news or in culture and I like my brain comes up with something that wants to say and I think it might be clever and I'm not sure if it's helpful or not. I'll like run yeah. it by her and she has been an incredible source of no, yeah, I think that's good. I think that's um, provocative in the right way, or I don't think that would serve you or anyone else well. I would not, I would not go there. And I, I've just been immensely grateful for that kind of feedback in my life. But we, yeah, we posted this up on the Facebook page. What do you love? What do you hate? What would you add? What would you take away? We would love to hear from you all over the Facebook page. The Common Good Radio Show coming up next. Jordan Abina, author of the new book Thoughts of a Dying Worship Leader, that's coming up next here on the Common Good on AM eleven sixty. Hope for your life. Hey everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. As always, you can find us a bunch of places. First is Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. That's where we post articles. You can send us messages. You can also find us Instagram and Twitter at Common Good Talk. And wherever it is, you get podcasts. We're absolutely thrilled to have, for a whole segment right now, Jordan Abina, who wrote a new book called Thoughts of a Dying Worship Leader. Welcome to the
2: show, sir. Hey, thanks so much. Pleasure to be here. Hey, would you take just a minute or two and, uh, introduce yourself to our audience? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my name is Jordan and I am living in California, but don't fear. I'm still singing and worshiping, depending mm. on where you land on that. Mm. And, uh, I've been a, been a worship leader for, uh, over a decade. You know, I got into, I love I've loved music my whole life, but, you know, worship, uh, became part of my life as probably 18 year old and I had the privilege of, you know, working with great people, men and women and, uh, from around the world doing music and missions and church and just trying to uh, stay fresh and uh, stay creative is a big part of kind of who I am. And so it was a pleasure to write a book, which was crazy. And now I'm talking about it, which, you know, if we met in person, you'd be like, I don't think this guy should be writing books, but <laughs> I did it anyway. So so here we are. And it's a pleasure to be
1: here. I love it. Well, when people meet us in person, they say, why are you, why do you have a radio show? So we get family. The description of the book that we got, it says it starts in a fascinating way. It says that you were a dying worship leader, feeling unable to reach beyond the uninterested faces staring back at you. Uh, talk <laughs> to us. Talk to me a little bit about uh where you were at and, and what led you to write this book.
2: It sounds like a, a great place to be at, doesn't it? Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <There's laughs> like, it's all it makes you feel all warm and fuzzy. Uh you know, if you're a worship leader, if you've been a part of worship music and maybe been in church, you get to you can get to a point where Maybe you start thinking, wow, I'm on a stage and no one else is. And Mm. is this a performance? Is it not? And is there a formula to this? You know, I started thinking that just maybe I knew the right songs in the right order, in the right way to get a response. And I wasn't sure. And I started to feel like the Holy Spirit was saying, you know what, Jordan, there's more here. Mm. And uh, I was struggling through it, you know, but I was still showing up on Sundays and I wasn't distant from the Lord. You know, Um, sometimes I think the perception is... And maybe especially for people in ministry when they when they're going through something that that also means that they're distant from from God and that wasn't the case at all. I was I was going to God with my frustrations and the and I like to write hmm. uh, and I have and never meant to write a book. Um, maybe it's been a dream of mine, but I was in my devotion time in the Lord. I was reading Second Chronicles twenty, and it's the story and I talk about it in the book and you've probably heard it it's where. There's like three armies and the God's people have to go out and, and God's like, just go out there and stand your ground and I'll take care of it. And, uh, and and the way that I always heard that passage was like, praise precedes the victory. You ever heard that? Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. you know, as we praise and God's going to do the work and that's awesome and cute most of the times, <laughs> but except when I'm afraid and I, you know, and, and praise is becoming hard. Right. And in that story, they send all the musicians out to the front. You know, and this isn't uncommon, Mm -hmm. but I felt like the Lord said to me, Jordan, look at that closely because in that scripture it doesn't necessarily say that they're ever going to be coming back. It just says, I'm gonna win this battle for you. Mm -hmm. You're not gonna have to do anything. But I felt like, wow, like what a spot for those musicians and worship leaders to be in. So the faith that it must have took. Like, was there any goodbye conversations? with their family. Like we're going out to battle. Like, wasn't there just one guy who's like, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Like probably the bass players. Like, I'm not so sure. Like guys, you're playing the song or like, why would Mm -hmm. we go out in the front? They have archers. And, and I felt like the Lord said, Jordan, that's how, that's how the only way you're going to be able to survive this and be able to be a part of what I'm doing is I need you to go onto the platform like that following me and my instructions and let me win this battle of people's hearts and it just saved me and so Mm. the 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 idea behind that name is you know maybe some of those worship leaders weren't sure if they were coming back and i and i just started to imagine like the ferocity that they must have had for whatever it is they were playing and singing with that type of mindset and it just changed me uh and i just started writing about that and some of my experiences and it was it was really rewarding that's
0: awesome i actually taught on that just a couple of months ago we were doing a devotional for our church in the midst of you know a pandemic which is you use the word fear and uncertainty a little bit i'd love to know like what hope or encouragement would you give to church leaders maybe specifically worship leaders in the midst of like a global pandemic where a lot of people feel very uncertain at best
2: yeah no doubt i mean i i I feel i feel it every day more my wife's kind of a you know, a steady line across the board with a few blips here. I'm like the roller coaster. you know, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm waking up on a Sunday on sun Sundays. I'm like, Jesus is coming back and I'm going to usher him in today. And then the next day I'm like, oh man, I'm just, I feel like, you know, uh, Elijah just feed me like I'm, I want to die or something. But uh, I think something that's, that's helped me recently is I was speaking to a pastor. He He's a superintendent of our district, Brett Allen. And he said, he started talking about Jesus being in the garden of Gethsemane and he asked me like Jordan uh and this is on a podcast I do called Next Explorers and he said what changed when Jesus went to the garden and I knew that I wasn't going to get this answer right so I just didn't say anything. <laughs> and he was like <laughs> the circumstances around him didn't change the plan didn't change none of that changed the only thing that changed was Jesus by the time he came out he was ready to walk in the plan that God had for him and And I've been thinking about that and I I was thinking to myself, nothing about how I worshiped and sought after God has changed. Like all of those things remain the same. Yes, everything around me is kind of going crazy Mm -hmm. and I don't have an answer to all of it. And depending on which channel I turn on could ruin my life. (laughs) You know, but the way that the way that we go to the Lord, right? Like is still the same. I think like He He says we can come. He says He hears us. And I think maybe that this is a season where those things are now the only things we have. We had some other things, right? Like, I don't know how long you can live off of the Christian kind of multimedia structure that our world has. And it's awesome, but there is not amount of YouTube videos. That's going to get me through 2020. Like I need the Lord. And Mm -hmm. I think the blessing is the way that he says we can commune with him have not changed, but Oh man, is it challenging for sure. But um what else can we do?
1: Yeah. yeah, right. In your book, you use some real interesting imagery. You call worship. You describe worship as war, as a war. Yeah. So, talk to us a little bit about that. Why do you think that? Why did you use that imagery?
2: Yeah, well, if you if you've ever been a part of worship, I mean, sometimes it's a battle for sure. Um, you're battling for people to engage. But as I kind of talk about that, I, I felt I realized that that was not a battle I could win on my own. Mm. Uh, there's a story I share in the book where. Uh, We're having practice, right? So we're at practice this, and it's probably like 7.30, 8 at night. And some of the people who are doing our landscaping at our church, their whole family was on campus for whatever reason. And I saw this lady um, looking in, and I could tell she wanted to come into the auditorium. I was like, come on in. (laughs) And so she sat down with her daughter, and then during it, she just was crying, right? Like she's just like loving it. And it was so great. And the band saw it, and so we started like vibing because all of a sudden – we weren't practicing anymore. We were leading worship and it was just awesome. Like, and so surely in that moment, something's going on that's outside of us. But on the same night, no joke, we have a girl, a young lady who's in the band and her family is not uh, her. She comes from a family of unbelievers and practice is going and her mom shows up and her mom has made it known. She has her concerns about her daughter being here, which is probably why she was there. And so Just think about this. So for the rest of the night, which is probably another 30 minutes, the woman crying because of what the Lord's doing in her life is in the room. And then this woman who doesn't know Jesus and is saying doesn't want to know Jesus. They're the only two people in a room that we're leading worship. Wow. And it just just dawned on me that worship is probably more than I think it is. And there's a lot more going on. Yeah. And I got to show up because it counts. And so it's just... There's a battle there and it just just changed my perspective of, of what was going on just that night, you know, and the band felt it too. Like just being in that room with someone who's saying is an unbeliever and someone who obviously, you know, is really being moved. It was just, it was special.
0: That's really yeah. cool, man. As, as we wrap up, where can people go to learn more? Where can they get the book? You mentioned a podcast, Instagram, any of that. Where can people go to learn more, connect with you?
2: Yeah, you can go to jordanabina.com and that can kind of take you everywhere. It'll take you to a place to buy the book, Thoughts of a Dying Worship Leader. I just launched a new podcast called Next Explorers, uh, just interviewing some amazing men and women. And uh, I actually made a podcast for Thoughts of a Dying Worship Leader. And it just just goes a little deeper through every chapter. And uh, yeah, leave me a message somewhere. Love to connect.
0: That's wonderful, man. That again is Jordan Nabina, author of the new book, Thoughts of a Dying Worship Leader, available wherever books are sold. Jordan, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today.
2: My pleasure. It was great. Thank you.
0: Appreciate it, man. You're You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Coming up this hour, Tim Keller weighs in on secular justice and critical theory. And then later, we're going to talk about political idolatry. You're listening to The Common Good. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm, who, uh, well, we'd love to know what you think about what he said earlier regarding chocolate chip cookies. That's Uh, right. I really was disappointed to learn this information, but I, I feel like... I'm convicted by the Holy Spirit that I need to love you still as a brother, Brian. So I'm going to move Thank past you. this. Um, but if I find out that you also like burnt marshmallows, we're going, to be in, we're going to be in real trouble.
1: No, we're okay on that one. I'm not a burnt marshmallow guy. But okay. I do feel like one of the interesting things that's happened here with our discussions last uh, week about food, first the avocado and uh, then the burnt chocolate chip cookies. If you weren't with us earlier, I said, I like my chocolate chip cookies really crispy, almost burnt. Uh, and I talked about how my wife vehemently disagrees with this. She's on your side with the avo- being pro-avocado and uh, soft, gooey uh, cookies. So I'm starting to get a little bit of a complex here. Uh, I but, think rightfully yeah.
0: so, Brian. I think that's, um, that's evidence that your your wife has her head on straight. I'm just going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> One of us has to. <laughs> uh, no more stalling, though, because this article is real long. Real quickly, though, yep. you can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, or wherever it is you get podcasts subscribe rate review that helps us out a whole bunch tim keller who uh, i think i think we can say we're both fans of is that right big he,
1: fan yes, he, yes he's
0: yes. done a lot of writing since his retirement and uh lately he just seems like he's he's a bit on fire this is a long article i see plenty of people disagreeing with it already so i'm not in any way going to presume that this is some kind of slam dunk but the title is a biblical critique of secular justice and critical theory it's really good it's really long so Brian yep. and I are just going to kind of cherry pick some of the parts of it that we uh, really resonate with. But I really do encourage you. I say this every time. Go to the Facebook page and read the whole thing. But why, why don't you get us into it a little bit?
1: Yes, this is specifically one. You should take some time and uh, it'll, it'll take you a little while. But it, like everything Keller tends to write, it's worth your time. Whether you agree with him or disagree with him, he's going to get you thinking. Uh, a good spot to start is always at the beginning. He says, the problem we face, which justice? There have never been stronger calls for justice than those we are hearing today. But seldom do those issuing the calls acknowledge that currently there are competing visions of justice, often at sharp variance, and that none of them have achieved anything like a cultural consensus, not even in a single country like the U.S. It is overconfident to assume that everyone will adopt your view of justice rather than some other, merely because you say so. So then he goes on to say biblical justice. In the Bible, Christians uh, have an ancient, rich, strong, comprehensive, complex, and attractive understanding of justice. Biblical justice differs in significant ways from all the secular alternatives without ignoring the concerns of any of them. Yet Christians know little about biblical justice, despite its prominence in the scriptures. This ignorance is having two effects. First, large swaths of the church still do not see "quote doing justice" as part of their calling as individual mm. believers. Second, many younger Christians, recognizing this failure of the church and wanting to rectify things, are taking up one are taking up one or another of the secular approaches to justice, which introduces distortions into their practice and their lives. And so, that's clearly what this long paper, this long article, is going to be trying to get at. Uh, that we are in error when we uh, ignore justice, right? When, when we as Christians say that doing justice isn't our calling. Uh, and that also we're in error, he says, when we swing the pendulum too far the other way and take on the secular approaches that he's going to define later uh, to justice. Uh, Keller wants to find us in the middle and go, Though we as Christians need to be committed to biblical justice, and then he's going to define it. And so it's a huge task, right? It's a huge task he's undertaking here, but certainly a timely one with all of the calls for social justice right now in our culture.
0: He goes on, he says, early Enlightenment thinkers sought a basis for morality and justice, not in God or religion, but one that could be discovered by human reason alone. David Hume did not believe that was possible. He argued that there are no moral norms or absolutes outside of us that we must obey regardless of what we think or feel, and therefore we cannot discover them through reason. Rather, he taught that the only basis for our moral decisions was not reason, but sentiment, moral intuitions grounded largely in our emotions rather than in our thinking. Hume, quote, won the field, and today his successors have taken his ideas out of their logical conclusion that all moral claims are culturally constructed and so ultimately based on our feelings and preferences, not on anything objective. So then he's going to talk a little bit about the failure of the enlightenment project. He's going to talk about some of the, uh, some of the foundations and some of the philosophers that kind of led to some of these various convictions. It's, it's really, really fascinating. It's, it's definitely uh, very Keller. He's, I've heard him a number of times publicly admit to being as much a philosopher as a theologian, and that that comes out loud and clear in this article. What I really want to jump to, though, is a brief outline of biblical justice. Are you ready? Let's jump in. He says, in order to compare biblical justice to the secular alternatives, below is a brief outline of the facets of biblical justice. I don't know how much time I can spend on this, but I'm going to give you a brief flyover one community others have a claim on my wealth so i must give voluntarily the the bible depicts the human world as a profoundly interrelated community so the godly must live in such a way that the community is strengthened old testament mm-hmm. scholar bruce walke put, uh, puts it that all the teachings all the teachings on the righteous in the book of proverbs into a concise and practical principle the righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community the wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. The gleaning laws of the Old Testament are a case in point. Deuteronomy 24 is referenced. Landowners were commanded not to maximize profits by harvesting all sheaves or picking all the olives or grapes. Instead, the owner was to leave produce in the field for the workers uh, hmm. and the poor to take through labor, not through charity. And I, again, I got to stop there. I'm going to let you jump in with number two.
1: Yep, number two. Uh, equity, everyone must be treated equally and with dignity. Leviticus 24 says you are to have the same law for the foreigner as for the native-born. The Hebrew word uh, mesreim means equity, and Isaiah 33, 15 says those who speak with equity or mesraim keep their hands from accepting bribes. Bribery is unjust because in Commerce, law, and government, it does not treat the poor the same as it does the wealthy. Any system of justice or government in which decisions or outcomes are determined by how much money parties have is a stench before God. Another example of inequity uh, is unfair business practices. Leviticus 19, Deuteronomy 24 speak of unfair wages. Amos 6 speaks of unjust scales. To cut corners and provide an inferior product in order to make more money but not serve customers is to do And injustice.
0: Yeah, let me just read the other three briefly because, well, not surprisingly, we're we're already out of time. But number three, uh, corporate responsibility. I am sometimes responsible for and involved in other people's sins. That one. Just spend the time mm-hmm. reading that one paragraph, by the way. It's really good. Number four, individual responsibility. I am finally responsible for all my sins, but not for all my outcomes. That's really good. And then number five, mm-hmm. advocacy. We must have special concern for the poor and the marginalized. He says, while we are not to show partiality to any, we are to have special concern for the powerless. This is not a contradiction. Proverbs 31 says speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves defend the rights of the poor and the needy the bible doesn't say speak up for the rich and powerful not because they are less important as persons before god but because they don't need you to do this the playing field is not level and if we don't advocate for the poor there will not be equality in this aspect Mm -hmm. of justice we are seeking to give more social financial and cultural capital aka power to those with less i'll kind of stop there because uh Obviously, there's a ton here. We should have committed two segments to this because I, uh-huh. I just think it's great. But I'd love to know, Pastor Brian, from like what what's just one maybe big takeaway that you have from this article.
1: Uh, the overall, uh, the overarching uh, takeaway is we have to be about justice as Christians, and that there's a particular bent, what he's calling biblical justice here. But especially that that take that says, oh, we're just about the gospel, right? You and I have talked about that a million times here, or we're just about individual uh, salvation. That, that no, we're called. To be men and women who stand up for the marginalized, and then I think that last point about advocacy, I think, is so powerful. I am glad that you read some of it. Uh, that while we're not, we don't show partiality, we show special concern to the powerless. I think you know Christians and the church need to be very not just aware, right, that the for the poor and the marginalized, but to be the ones who are standing up and advocating for. Uh, I think is a powerful one. So I think Keller does typical Keller work here, and it just goes on and on. But uh, I think those are my big takeaways for me.
0: Yeah, let me just sort of read how he closes it. He says, so the Bible does not presume an end to the binary of power. Rule and authority are not intrinsically wrong. Indeed, they are necessary in any society. But while not ending the binary, neither does Christianity simply reverse it. It does not merely fill the top rungs of authority with new parties who will use power in the same oppressive way that it is around the world. Because it is rooted in the death and resurrection of Jesus, Christianity neither eliminates nor merely reverses the ruler ruled binary. Rather, it subverts Mm -hmm. it. When Jesus saves us through his use of power only for service, he changes our attitude toward and our use of power. There is nothing in the world like biblical justice. Christians must not sell their birthright for a mess of pottage, but they must Mm -hmm. take up their birthright and do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with their God. That is... Tim Keller in all his Tim Keller is super grateful for That's him. Right. I encourage you to go and read the whole thing. Take the time to actually take a deep dive into it. Coming up next executive director of hopeful beginnings. Joanne Brada will join us here on the common good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm, real briefly, you can find us a bunch of places on Facebook, the Common Good Radio Show, 1160 hopecom slash the Common Good. We're also on Instagram and Twitter, same handle, at Common Good Talk. And wherever it is, you get podcasts. If you are the podcasting type, if you wouldn't mind, subscribing, rating, and reviewing on whatever platform you're using. Helps us out a whole ton, helps more people find the show, and we really appreciate all of you who have already done that. We are thrilled to have back on the show Joanne Brada. She is uh, the executive director of Hopeful Beginnings, a nonprofit organization right here in Chicagoland. Welcome back to the show, friend.
3: Thank you so much. It's good to be back. Good to have you back.
0: Would you just take a a minute or two and uh, reintroduce yourself to our audience?
3: Oh, sure. As you said, I'm Joanne Brada, and I'm the director of Hopeful Beginnings, of Saint Mary's, um, I'm a nurse, a teacher, and a counselor, and um, I'm married, and I have two wonderful boys, and one of them is married, and to a wonderful girl, and uh, we have two dogs. So that's kind of that's kind of the whole thing in a nutshell.
1: Lovely. I also have two dogs. That's that's a tiring life.
3: <laughs> oh yes, it is, especially when you first get them, and we just yeah. got them.
1: <laughs> uh, us as well, us as well. So, uh, Joanne, I want to talk a little bit about adoption, and I would love for you to tell us about the process uh, that a potential birth mom may go through if when she's considering placing her baby up for adoption. What is that process like?
3: Well, the process for her stout, starts out with intense fear. She's not sure what she's getting into. Um, I think people look at adoption as they did years ago. I'll never see my baby again. Um, But what she's really looking at is that she's usually emotionally or financially not in a place where she wants to to be. Hmm. And usually the people that look at adoption are people that have at least one child. So they know what it's like. It's not um, all la-la land and all like, I'm going to have a baby and this is going to be wonderful and money's going to start dropping out and I can handle everything. So those are the things that they're going through. And then with the adoption people like us, Hopeful Beginnings, we come in and we help them process what are the pros and cons of adoptions Hmm. in detail? What is it going to look like for you? Because we're not looking at it for us. We have to step into her shoes and help empower her to make the best and the hardest decision that she'll ever make in her life. Yeah. We also have to clarify the fact that it's not foster care. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of people think that it's just like foster care. The big difference is that you get a relationship with your birth child for the rest of your life. Hmm. I
0: want, I want to talk to you a little bit about counseling. It's something that Brian and I have talked about on the show a lot the last year and a half and something that I, I, I continue to realize is really stigmatized, particularly in a lot of Christian circles. What, okay. What's sort of your, your thought and perspective on, on counseling? When should someone get it? When do you feel like it's most urgent or most necessary? I, I'd love to just kind of hear your heart there.
3: Sure. Um, with counseling in terms of having an unplanned pregnancy, I think the sooner the better so that you can really have a, a birth plan in place for yourself. If we're looking at a postpartum depression um, or even a pregnancy depression or anxiety, again, ASAP, not to be afraid. There are places out there that will care for you, just like You will feel comfortable. Hopeful Beginnings offers that free. And all of our counseling right now is virtual. And Mm. that works because we can serve towns all over the place. We can serve Northern Illinois, Southern Illinois. So um, I think it's really gone through a metamorphosis, a lot of stigma, but we're starting to get rid of that stigma with a lot of the people coming out and talking about, it's all right to talk to somebody to solve what issues you're going through.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I totally understand the counseling in adoption scenarios and other scenarios. What about when people have lost a child or had a pregnancy end unexpectedly, do you guys have services for people going through those kind of traumas?
3: Yes, we do. Yes, we do. And I would say that we're um, you know, we get referrals from hospitals about people who've lost their children, and we are waiting for them to reach back out to us when they're ready. And I would say sooner than later, because mm. it's so painful. Um, it's it's like a, it's a death of a child, yeah. and I think that we have seen strides in this area also before it was ignore it, um, you know, just keep a stiff upper lip, don't talk about it, it's going to go away. Well, it's not. It's not going to go away unless you sit down and process it out with, it could be for the wife um, talking with a counselor, the husband talking with a counselor. And, And I think you really get somewhere because you have to, um, do lots of things in counseling, like write the baby a letter and go through the grief. There's nothing wrong hmm. with that.
0: Hmm. I'm curious what what has shifted from your vantage point in the light of this pandemic. Like, has your has your job changed at all? Are you are you seeing people wrestling with things in a different way? Like, how how has not only the pandemic, but then quarantine and stay at home orders and all that, how has that affected what you do?
3: It's really we get more clients. Now, because people are suffering with the isolation of COVID, Um, their lives have changed dramatically. And I think that there's a realization, I'm really anxious and I'm really Mm. depressed. Mm. And this is making it a lot worse. What are some things that I can do to make myself better? So I think that the fact that we're virtual, that they don't have to leave their homes, And they can talk and see our faces and we can see theirs. There's a lot of, um, so our numbers have gone up with this.
2: Wow.
1: Joanne, I'm wondering how churches and also individuals who are interested in helping, what are the volunteer opportunities? I know COVID's probably changed that. And also, how can people just support your ministry?
3: I think that um, the one thing is we are having a virtual gala on November 14th. And my friend Alan Kraszewski from Channel 7 is going to be emceeing it. We're going to oh, have great. entertainment awesome. um, and we're going to have a live and a silent auction and tickets are drastically decreased from our regular gala. So if you're early bird, it's $75. And, you know, we really appreciate it. And we're also having dinner catered to your home. So that wow. is one giant way because we have really felt the financial uh, constraints of cold bed. And then when we get back into the office, you know, there's always things like office work, answering phones, helping us out in that way. A lot of skilled people like to volunteer and they do outreach to their own churches, hmm. to their own places, uh, their own groups, their Bible studies. And we welcome that. And if anybody would like me to come out to them to um, talk to their groups, I'm so, I'm so happy to do that. To try to help spread the word about what we do.
0: Oh, that's great. Okay, so with the last 30 seconds or so that we have left, Joanne, where can people get in contact with you? Websites, phone numbers, emails, yeah. just to hit them with all of it.
3: Sure. Um, website, the easy one to go to is freecounselingnow.org. Um Our official website is hopefulbeginning.org, and we can be reached 24 7, 847.
0: That's wonderful. That voice you're hearing, by the way, is Joanne Brada, the executive director of Hopeful Beginnings, a nonprofit organization right here in Chicagoland. Thank you for joining us once again on the show. We appreciate it.
3: Thank you for having me. Take care and have a good evening.
0: You You as well. Thanks so much. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Oh, hey, guys. Welcome back to The Common Good. Didn't see you there. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. We are recording from our homes because we live in wild times. But you can find us other places, not just our homes, like the Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. It's not only where we post our articles, but we would love to hear from you. If you have suggestions for future shows, whether that's a topic or a a book or a speaker or anything in between, you can write us there. You can also find us at 1160hope.com slash The Common Good. And wherever it is, you get your podcasts. You want to go ahead and subscribe, rate, and review. All of that does really help us out a whole lot, and we're super grateful for all of you who have done that already. And uh, I'm still, I'm still hung up on this burnt chocolate chip cookie thing, but I'm going to move on. You are. Yeah, but, uh, I really need. I need to. I need to. I need to, I need to pray for healing, uh, both for myself <laughs> and for my brother Brian here. But this is an article we have out of the Gospel Coalition, and it's also a list. So I know that makes Brian very happy. Let me just read the headline, and then I'm going to let Brian kind of lead us into it, it says uh, the intellectual in Canada who unmasked political idolatry in America or why politics won't save us. What's going on here?
1: Yeah. And let me do just say, I don't prefer the burned cookie. I prefer the crispy cookie, which sometimes gets a little close to burned. It gets there. Uh, but what a, what a daredevil. What a bad. <laughs> I, like to, I like
0: to flirt with the line of burnt.
1: But not quite. So this, starts, this is by Bruce Ashford at the Gospel Coalition, and he starts with an editor's note. It says, taking the advice of C.S. Lewis, we want to help our readers keep the clean sea breeze of the centuries blowing through our minds, which he argued can be done only by reading old books. So to that end, we continue our rediscovering the forgotten classic series as we survey some forgotten and lesser known Christian classics. Given the political upheaval in recent weeks and months, this was actually soon after the 2016 election. This is when it was written we asked Bruce Ashford to highlight an overlooked work of political theology that uniquely encourages and equips Christians today. So Bruce Ashford starts the 2016 election cycle put on full display, the dysfunctional vitriolic travesty that is American politics and public life. At least it's not true anymore, right? Uh, (laughs) Any person with only the dimmest spark of critical reflectiveness can recognize the social, cultural, and political breakdown in our nation. Of course, the more difficult task is to identify the causes of that breakdown and offer a way forward. For that task, the work of Canadian political scientist David Coisies is especially helpful in Political Visions and Illusions, a survey and Christian critique of contemporary ideologies. He argues that the problem with modern politics isn't found principally in political parties, disputes, candidates, or policy issues. Rather, it's uh, it's discovered in the deeper more pervasive phenomenon of idolatry. Oh boy. According to the Bible, idolatry is absolutizing some aspect of God's creation. Instead of worshiping God as God, we elevate some part of his creation to the level of ultimacy reserved for him alone. Thus an idol or a combination of idols sits on the thrones of our hearts, commanding our loyalties uh, and shaping our lives. Uh, He says idolatry and its negative consequences spread like a plague, radiating outward from a person to society as a whole. As idols move into politics and public life, they manifest themselves in modern political ideologies, as he argues. Every modern political uh, political ideology tends to deify or idolize some aspect of the created order, hmm. and he says here are four such political idols. I think this is so true, man. I haven't even looked at the list, but I think <laughs> I think a lot of the problem with our politics, with a lot of stuff right now, is idolatry. It's it's holding something up. Uh, that yeah. was never meant to to be Lord, and and I don't think we often see it that way. But I think I think uh, he is right here.
0: Well, and and fair warning, um, of this four, one of these is going to offend you. So just you know, brace yourself. I think one of these is probably going to get under your skin. And uh, let's start with number one: liberalism in parenthetically sovereignty of individual in its earliest forms liberalism arose from within the christian tradition and wasn't idolatrous by definition it denoted commitment to a constitutional and representative government that emphasized liberty and personal freedom yet it quickly took on ideological dimensions by absolutizing individual autonomy liberalism's emphasis on the individual reduces the community to little more than a collection of autonomous individuals and government to a quote necessary evil early on liberals insisted Uh, That the state should be minimal, existing only to protect individuals and their property. Before long, though, they expanded the state so that it would protect them from more ambiguous threats such as lack of resources. And eventually, liberals came to expect the government to accommodate their personal desires and to do so in a religiously and morally neutral manner. So when a person's poor judgment or immoral choices cause negative consequences, a liberal populace expects the government to, oh boy, give me that word, Ryan. I always struggle with it every time or even eliminate the consequences. I'll stop there because I want to get to all four of these. But I I think that's a that's a pretty fair treatment. Why don't you want to dive into number two?
1: Yep. For those of you that felt good that he said liberalism, number one, number two, conservatism, Mm -hmm. Uh, tradition as source of norms. Conservatism is often viewed as the popular opposite of liberalism yet as Koises notes, conservatism isn't a single stable or unified ideology we can encapsulate in an identifiable doctrinal position. It doesn't even qualify strictly as an ideology since it tends to feed off other ideologies. Its tendency is to quote conserve and usually it seeks to conserve a particular era in a nation's cultural heritage. Conservatism tends to deify a certain er, uh, era in national life and ascribe evil to grand social reform agendas. But one problem with pure conservatism is that it's always on the move. Like progressivism, it's less an abstract ideology than a contextual response. Consider American conservatism, whose adherents are having the most difficult time making tactical, much less strategic, alliance with each other. From our nation's cultural heritage, what are conservatives trying to conserve? Individual liberty, moral norms, the economic conditions of a previous era, ethnic primacy? Uh, Another problem with pure conservatism is that on its own, it lacks transcendent principles. Uh, And so, jumping down, it says regardless, a pure social conservatism elevates cultural heritage to a level of ultimacy. yeah, ultimacy reserved for God alone. And for that reason, it has a twisting and distorting effect socially and culturally. All right.
0: Number three of four nationalism, a parenthetically nation deified nationalism takes on ideological tendencies, causes averse when a people absolutize the nation, viewing it as the savior. That'll protect them from being ruled, corrupted or influenced by nations and people different from them in the modern West. Nationalism often manifests itself as an inordinate allegiance to, to a modern nation state. Nationalists usually view their nation as superior to others in the ability to exemplify some transcendent value. For Americans, this value is usually freedom. Since our nation possesses the highest virtue, the argument goes, we must be God's favorite. This thinking goes beyond patriotism, which is healthy and good, to idolatry. Uh, yet nationalism also manifests itself in the ethnic or tribal varieties. Consider the reemergence of white nationalism in the past decade, and especially during the 2016 election cycle. Proponents such as Jared Taylor and Richard Spencer argue that black communities are uncivilized and unable to perpetuate civilization, that they have corrupted our nation, and that white people should therefore give preference to whites and seek to preserve whiteness above all else. This type of ethno nationalism functions as a false and grotesque religion. It claims to seek justice, which is noble and reasonable. While failing to value or protect those not of its kind, that that'll pack a punch. And I want to I want to give enough time for number four here, Brian.
1: Number four: is socialism or common ownership as salvific. Socialism comes in many varieties. Some versions take revolutionary approach; others a more gradual and peaceful approach to undermining the free market. Some base their claims in science; others in philosophy or religion. Nonetheless. All variations of socialism have in common an impulse toward coercing society toward material equi- equality and communal property ownership. Although these factors are economic, they can't be realized without the exertion of political force. Socialism defi- deifies material equality, locates evil in material inequality and then vests communal ownership with messianic qualities to fix Society. I'll stop on that one. But that one is socialism. And I think he nailed all, th- all four of these, quite frankly.
0: Well, and and we know, honestly, that was like a breakneck speed flyover. I do encourage you to go to the Facebook page, read the entire thing, and we'd love to know your critique of one or all four of these. What would you add? What do you take away? What do you completely disagree with? Or what do you agree with so much that you'd love to shout out from our rooftops? Uh, we'd love to hear from you regarding that. I've been trying to kind of weave together some of these segments because coming up next here out of Christianity Today the stories our politicians tell, our allegiance to economic prosperity, can shape us more than we realize. That's coming up next here on the Common Good on AM eleven sixty. Hope for your life. Adio, neighbors. Welcome back to the Common Good. It is the final segment of the day, the home stretch, as the kids say. But a couple of quick things before we dive into this last article. If you want to find us, we're on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. You can not only weigh in on the articles we're posting, which are getting a lot of traction right now. You can also send us a message if you have thoughts or suggestions for future shows or thoughts on past shows or just want to say howdy. You can do all that on the Facebook page. You can like that page, review it, share it. Anything helps us out a whole bunch. We appreciate that. Plus, we're podcasted. And uh, wherever it is, you get podcast, if you wouldn't mind subscribing, rating and reviewing, that helps us out a whole ton. And we are super grateful For all of you who have done that, plus we have some giveaways coming up and uh, you'll want to be following us either on the podcast or on the Facebook page to learn more about those. That's a big secret. And I'll let you know a little bit later. Before, though, we wrap up the show, we have one more article I'd like to discuss. It's out of Christianity Today, ChristianityToday.com. And the headline simply reads, the stories our politicians tell. Our allegiance to economic prosperity can shape us more than we realize. This is by Caitlin, she's, and uh, I'd love, Brian, for you to get us into it a little bit.
1: Yep, let me read the beginning of it. You've picked some long articles today, by the way. They're good yeah. ones. They're nice. good. Uh, as the height of the 2020 presidential election season approaches, many Christians are asking important questions about our political responsibility. What policies should I support? Do I vote on party lines or on the issues most important to me? In the midst of a global pandemic and racial tensions tension splintering our society, the stakes feel different this year. But important questions about parties and candidates can easily obscure another question at the heart of our political and spiritual lives. What story am I buying into? What a fascinating question. Politics is all about storytelling. Picture Ronald Reagan's iconic 1984 Morning in America campaign ad. Light slowly rises over shots of farmers working in the fields and a paper boy throwing his morning paper onto the green lawns. A family moves into their home. A beaming couple celebrates their wedding and the sun rises over Capitol Hill. The economic statistics listed throughout the ad are secondary to the emotional and visual story of hope, new beginnings and the American dream. In their campaigns, candidates do not merely outline policy proposals. They articulate a vision of a good life, free Hmm. from certain threats in community with the right kind of people. These marketable narratives are not content to remain on the at the pet uh, Uh, penultimate level, shaping our political decisions while leaving our theological commitments and spiritual formation unaffected. Like all persuasive, effective stories, they will fight for ultimate status in our lives. Let me pause there. This makes me think, regardless of whether you voted for him or regardless of what you thought uh, thought about him as a president, it makes me think of President Obama, right? Like when President Obama ran in 2008, you knew the story, the story, the narrative was one of hope and change, right? Hope and change, hope and change. And by the end, you knew exactly uh, what the Obama campaign was about, whether you voted for him or whether you believed he could fulfill that. If you asked what were the other candidates running on? I remember thinking, you can't really tell me, you know, what exactly is Hillary Clinton or John McCain at that time or whatever. But If they asked you, uh, Barack Obama, what's his story? Hope and change. It's a story of there's a new horizon. There's a new thing coming. uh, And that swept him right into the White House. And so, yeah, politics are stories. It's the politicians can tell the best story are usually the ones who can get a following in an election.
0: Well, let me let me read how uh, this article ends, because I've also made a promise to myself to mention this phrase. Anytime it shows up in something we're reading, says political participation is one way we creatively pursue the common good. The common good of God's creation and Christians should work to faithfully evaluate different policy proposals using both their theology and their knowledge of policymaking. However, we must also learn to identify and challenge the prevailing stories that animate each policy in their book, people of the truth, the power of the worshiping community in the modern era, Robert Weber and Rodney Clapp call this the diacritical function of the church. We both criticize the errant stories we are immersed in and offer a compelling alternative. The power of political storytelling presents both a challenge and an opportunity to church leaders struggling to respond to the evangelical political crisis. Our churches are filled with people who have been strongly shaped by political stories that affect their voting and shape their theology, relationships, and spiritual formation. Yet the church has the resources, corporate worship, scripture, historic liturgy, music, community to instill an even greater story. Our conversations about evangelical political engagement need to be greater than which policies we should support or who should earn our vote. Those decisions cannot be abstracted away from the larger stories that animate them, stories that form our identity and desires instill fears and loyalties in us and orient our work in the world toward ultimate good. As people formed weekly by a grand story. We should learn to recognize the competing narratives that threaten to unseat the story of the kingdom of God from its place as the controlling narrative in our lives. The church has exactly the resources it needs. The ultimate story communicated through teaching and historic Christian practices rehearsed in the context of the community of God. I I would love to know how someone else is maybe hearing that. Like what, what does that lead you to, to want to do or enact or change even maybe ask you specifically that, Brian, like as a pastor does does that compel you to to do anything different or to have different kinds of conversations in your in your own life and work?
1: I think it reminds me that our role is to paint the picture of what can be right to tell the story uh and not some pie in the sky story, but the story of the gospel, the story of of uh of hope uh rather than sometimes I can get in the mud and just want to like fight or uh you know. Uh, complain about what's going on. And I think the church has an opportunity, especially in a time of global pandemic and all sorts of other stuff where there's just darkness and struggle and people are hurting to paint a picture to, to kind of shed some light that says, Hey, there, there's something better. And so I think uh, it's a good reminder for me, at least as a Christ follower not to be like fakely positive, but instead to go, no, but there is hope. Let me point you to that hope. Let me point you to the grand story uh, that there's more than this struggle that we're going on right now. I think, uh, th- I think the church has a real opportunity right here. How about yourself as you hear all, uh, as you read this about story right now?
0: Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's more than just simply storytelling. I don't, I don't think that's what she's getting. I don't think it's just about like, hey, we should tell more stories or like keep the meta narrative in mind. Right. I think that's I think that's part of what I think she's really driving home, though, is like the reality that these stories shape us. Like we tend to think that we only like yeah. consume stories the way that we do, you know, we would like a food item, but like even thinking about how our food shapes us, you know, we don't typically think, oh, this one Big Mac is gonna that's shaping my life. But if, yeah, if you have a Big Mac, all three meals every day for the next six months, you better believe that's gonna shape who you are, like that's gonna have impact on who you are. And I think the stories that we choose to believe or align with we're often doing subconsciously. I think like we don't really realize that like, Oh, my story is different than his story or the story that I'm believing or the story that I'm telling myself. I think that's where it gets tricky because I I think what I read here at the end, I think a lot of us will go, yeah. And yet we're just as eager and comfortable, like dismantling someone else who is like political or theological ideologies are a little different than ours. To yes. me that shows like a disconnect from r- really a fair full self assessment of like how are the stories that i'm believing shaping me that's a it's a tricky thing to do i think
1: absolutely and i think it's a, it also begins with a uh, uh an acknowledgement like you said that the stories do shape us like we get shaped by various narratives this is on a on a on a negative side right this is what can make um uh cable news so powerful right <laughs> like this narrative that kind of shapes how we live and what we believe and i do think like you said we're being shaped by messages shaped by stories i think i think it's great this is a really good article like you said it's long we'd encourage people to read it but i think it's a powerful one especially as we are heading you know full long right now into the election of 2020 Yeah,
0: And as always, that's on our Facebook page. I encourage you to uh, weigh in there or if you want to send us a private message about your own thoughts, we would love to hear from you there. It's been quite a day today. We hope you'll join us again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, my name is Ian Simpkins and you have been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life.